0: Hi and welcome to Faculty Focus, a podcast supporting the clinical education community in Leicester. We bring you educator CPD, showcasing initiatives, and shine a light on some of the faculty behind the all. My name is Dr. Andrew Hughes. I'm one of the consultant anesthetists at University Hospitals of Leicester, and I'm also the Faculty Focus lead or the Faculty Development lead within the trust too.
1: I'm Dipti Samani, I'm one of the um, consultant geriatricians here at the University Hospitals of Leicester and I run um, and lead the module on older persons medicine, which is in year three, phase two of the medical school block.
2: Hi guys, I'm Paris Patel, I'm uh, one of the ST3 anaesthetists working in East Midlands Deanery, currently at Kettering General Hospital.
0: Lovely, thanks very much uh, and welcome today's article and um, this is an article taken from an online uh, open access journal uh, it's called BMC medical education and the title of the paper we've chosen is an educational intervention to facilitate appropriate subspecialty referrals a study assessing resident communication skills this was done by a group of people in uh, the us in washington so george washington university and others working at the children's national hospital in washington and it was published earlier this year in July, uh, but actually the study period was between 2015 and 2019. Uh, so it taken a little while to write up. Um, and I've chosen it just because it's a different sort of paper in that it's an empirical research piece looking at a training intervention um, and it's been measured objectively with OSCEs. And I think often when we see interventions, we see them measured in terms of um, learner satisfaction or perceived um, benefits. Um, and actually, they've taken it a step further to try and objectively measure performance pre and post. So that's that's quite interesting. And I've also, referrals is something that, you know, as a, as a registrar coming through my training, working on ITU, referrals is something that you did a lot of trying to get specialty input. You know, learning to do it right through trial and error was something which, you um, yeah, it took a little while. So when I saw this paper, I thought, oh, someone's someone's looking at um, how to train people to make referrals or not. It also ties in with some of the work that Abby Millett uh, is doing here in uh, our ED department, uh, looking at critical conversations. So, yeah, so that's kind of the overview of the paper. Um, any first impressions um, from my two colleagues? Uh, Paris.
2: Yeah, it's quite unique in that uh, I've not read many papers that have a educational intervention and then the outcome measure. I, I know there are plenty. There are plenty out there, but it's one of the first few that I've read. Overall impressions are that yeah, it's quite sound in terms of its methodology and the way it's written up. Something that we can sort of certainly reflect on in our own clinical practice.
1: My first impressions of the paper was that I um, expected. From reading the title and the initial blurb about it, I expected it to be referrals into specialty referrals, so clinician-to-clinician um, clinician referrals and the communication skills around them, and was surprised to see reading into it that it was actually more of a kind of looking into how communication skills was from clinician to service user.
0: Yeah, so we'll, we'll get into that. Um What we'll do is we'll we'll sort of go through, describe some of the methods. So um, Paris, would you like to tell us what you thought about the methods and and how they went around this study?
2: What they, the the word that they use is that they used a blended multimodal educational intervention. So essentially all it means is that they use different methods to um, get the, apply the intervention. So, used an online element with an actual face-to-face session. And within that face-to-face session, they used a pre-OSCE teaching session followed by a post oski to see improvements. What they actually did was, as I said, they looked at um, syncopal episodes within paediatric patients. Um, and they noticed that quite often there were a lot of um, incorrect or uh, referrals which lead to a significant amount of anxiety, and unnecessary tests, etc. So that's the reason why they picked that sort of... Um, Um, specific diagnosis. They then used a tertiary paediatric centre to help paediatric trainees. First of all, learn about what are the red flag symptoms of syncopal episodes, and then what would prompt a referral to cardiology um, or paediatric cardiology, and then how one would communicate that with their parents, or how one would communicate that the patient does not need a cardiology referral. They first did a 20-minute, each student that was recruited did a 20-minute online element, which they did the night before. But then the next day would have their pre-OSCE stations where each student will do two OSCEs. One will be a a referral has been made, the other one was a no-referral, and they had to communicate with the parent as to what, as as the parent's concern. Each parent was prepared, so these are standardised parents, SPs is what they, essentially SPs are actors that have been trained to do these OSCEs. Standardised patients would score each student um, using a scale sort of scoring um, mixed with a yes-no scoring um, system. 20 questionnaire checklist was used with for each SP and Same checklist was used after the intervention. So after they had the teaching session, they did the same checklist and then they compared the two scores. And finally, each of the students would then also give their feedback. Quite sound methodology. It is multimodal in terms of the teaching. The checklist is validated, although they did make some modifications with the checklist. They then used a special score, which Andy will talk about on how they scored the validity of the checklist. I like the fact that they standardised the, par- the each of the parents. That was quite good in the sense that they, they were specifically trained to give out their emotions and whether they were in the referral or non-referral cohort. The thing that got me, though, was when the students had to do the OSCE, they were given the full scenario. The diagnosis was already made, relevant investigations were already carried out, examination, et cetera, was already carried out, and they were told that the patient would be with the referral or non-referral group. In some ways, yes, I think it's good because it allows the student just to focus on the communication skills and not anything else. But at the same time, it doesn't really, for me, it doesn't really reflect clinical practice. Because for me, when I, when we make referrals, I feel like we've already established a quite relationship with the parents. And that is quite important to how we communicate with them. During that process, at the end, where we say, "Okay, yeah, actually your your child doesn't need referral, or your child does need referral," and that what well, that's one of the things about the methodolo- methodology that I didn't quite agree with. I don't know what you guys' thoughts are.
0: I thought that was that part was interesting actually, because you know, as I was reading the method, and I was thinking, um, "Okay, so this is an in training intervention to look at." how we make sure our residents know when it is and it isn't appropriate to make a referral. And then they give them the correct answer, if you like, before they go in. It was less about identifying red flags and getting them to recall and apply the history to a kind of set of criteria. And actually when you go to the online module, if you you know, they do provide a link to the online learning module. And it, you know, it's focused on identifying red flags for either cardiovascular or neurological syncope. So yeah, I, was, I thought it was uh, well. If the invention is more on the communication, then you don't need to focus on the red flag bit. So yeah, I do agree with you with that. It, did, it was it was a bit unusual in terms of um, the online learning versus what they were actually going to practice in in the scenario. I think there is something to be said there about the simulation and pointing people in the right direction to make sure that you test for the correct thing or that you're focusing down on the on the thing you want to in a scenario because what actually often happens is that people want to try and cover too much too much ground so they often say we're going to do a a simulation on um uh, you know cardiac arrest um or management of the critically unwell patient they may be thinking well we're going we really want to concentrate on the communication with the rest of the team that's one part of lots of other things in the scenario so to then tease that bit out is really difficult in some respects i actually sort of commend them for saying no, we're concentrating on the communication element, um, so we're going to not, concent- you know, the clinical bit we're going to take care of because that, that might be the bit that causes a lot of anxiety in a simulation and we're just going to concentrate on the comms. So, so that was interesting, I just thought it was I suppose a smart move because the clinical bit is not the question here, it's the building the relationship with the patient and then making sure they don't get pushed into doing the wrong thing. Um, yeah. And I wonder
2: if there's a halfway house whereby their symptoms, signs and symptoms have been given to the clinician and they have a chance to have a, you know, a quick history from the patient. And then they make the decision at the time, uh, whether they would refer or not, and then have the communication. Uh, and prior to them doing the OSCE, maybe say, OK, you will only be assessed on how you communicate your decision, not so much your decision itself.
0: I think the other the other thing for me in the method was the, I don't think there was a recognition that putting someone through an OSCE before the workshop, the face-to-face training workshop, is actually part of the intervention as well. Because if you put someone through an OSCE before the training intervention, you've primed them to pick up the necessary information they need to then perform in the post-intervention OSCE. I know why they're doing it. They could compare pre and post OSCE scores, but actually the pre is part of the training intervention. So I think you have to recognise that in a study like this is that, you know, you're giving an online module plus a testing scenario, plus some face-to-face training before you then test them again. Um, And the other thing is they tested it straight away, straight after the training. Well, of course, you know, most people are going to perform much better straight away after an intervention, after a, a bit of training, than they are maybe, you know, two, three days, a week later, a month later, that sort of thing. So, you know, for me, it would be a case of, are you falsely reassuring yourself that people are now trained because they can perform you know, 20 minutes after having been trained? And I, I, I'm i not sure. I'm not sure that's a particularly valid measure. And actually, what probably needs to happen is you need to bring them back in a week's time and do the same sort of thing. That that was kind of my my thought on the method.
2: Yeah, I, I agree with that last point you make, though, spacing it out and doing the uh, test again later. Um, however, I could also foresee the practical implications of that. Um, getting the standardised patients to come back and again something that we will talk about later but they talk about the cost of that so maybe that's partly the reason why they did the post intervention there I don't know but yeah you're right in terms of its actual validity of doing an intervention immediate and then immediately testing that there's going to be some bias there
1: I think that some of the residents picked up on that as well didn't they um, they didn't Appreciate the fact that they were tested straight afterwards, and they would have liked to have had the testing. Um, There were some comments regarding that. And coming back to the initial point that you made, I quite liked as well. I agree with you, Andy, that I liked that the focus was where they wanted it to be in terms of testing what they wanted to test, i.e., the communication of the the decision that had already been made, rather than the making of the decision. So, yeah, I did like that.
0: They reference a um, a very commonly used. scale to measure training interventions and that's the kirkpatrick model um, so you know a lot of educators will be familiar with that it's it, there are other ones out there and, and in fact i'm sure you, you know you will be able to find people to sort of argue against that but yeah so they, they've gone in at level two so the measuring actual performance rather than what we often see we did this and people liked it just a couple of other little things really for me um, there was stuff about the cost you don't often see that you often see that in a in a sort of paper and you know in in real terms they've sort of outlined the cost of everything i thought it came in pretty cheap if i'm honest um considering all the expenses it takes to get these things off the ground um, and of course a lot of these are inbuilt so if you've got a you know a, a revenue funding that that's sort of allocated to simulation training then you won't see the cost as much but yeah i, I thought it was perhaps slightly cheap when you do the breakdown but um but yeah good to see
2: is that including the fact that the pound has crashed today and is um almost a pound to the dollar?
0: Yeah. Well, <laughs> interestingly, all the costs are in dollars. So uh oh. yeah, unaffected. Uh to put us to put this on, it would probably cost us twenty, thirty percent more, wouldn't it? But <laughs> yeah. Uh, that was good. All right, yeah, lovely. Um so there's 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 quite a bit to think about there in the methods. And and I think for me it illustrates actually it's really important to understand the methods um from the first impressions, this is what you know you could potentially read the abstract go to the results and say okay this is what it shows and and actually you really do need to understand the context and the methods that were used because there's a couple of things there that i had to set myself straight on just just to understand what what they were looking at and what they were what the results meant okay Uh, dipty you wanted to sort of talk about a little bit about the referrals and rapport building
1: so i found it really interesting that on the pre and post intervention 20 point checklist only one of the checklists referred to how the standardised patient or standardised parent felt when the referral was not made. And I was trying to bring that back to sort of my clinical practice and how, what in what kind of scenarios would you be, essentially, this was communication skills and reassurance in my mind. Uh, I know we didn't have the content of their communication skills that happened. But looking at questions and looking at the points that they were tested on, a lot of it was reassuring the patient on whether the referral was made or the referral wasn't made. Now, in clinical practice, a lot of the time, the most amount of reassurance or the most amount of anxiety occurs when um, an intervention or a procedure, a scan, something is not advised, so a referral not made in this case. And it was very interesting uh, to me in the 20-point feedback from the OSCIs that at point number 12, if no referral was made, the resident successfully helped to... helped you to feel reassured that it was not a life-threatening condition. Out of the 20 points, only one of them was about how you felt when a referral was not made, which I thought was really interesting because in clinical practice, I don't know how you feel, but in my clinical practice, much of the anxiety and much of the reassurance is required when the intervention or referral test scan, whatever you might think is actually not advised. And that's where the hard work feels to come into it. Um, so that was really, really interesting. I, I accept that when a referral was made, it's because you had red flags. But in clinical practice, I just felt you know, intuitively that a lot of anxiety comes around when you need to reassure people that something isn't maybe the matter when there aren't red flags um and i did some uh, you know did some hunting around papers reading around what was a what was available in terms of reassuring carers and caregivers of patients because yeah, Being a, uh, a geriatrician, I look after older people and this is the clinical scope that obviously occupies my min- mind for most of the, the working day. Um, and whilst I didn't find much re- with regards to older people, I did find a lot of general practice in terms of um, musculos- musculoskeletal problems and reassurance, particularly things like lower back pain, like whiplash associated injuries and reassuring that, uh, no, it doesn't need a scan. No, it doesn't need an ex- x-ray no it it will heal on its own and and those kind of papers and I don't know what you felt but I just was surprised that only one point in this 20 point scale was about reassurance around a, a referral not being made and that really really interested me in this paper
0: I completely see that and, and it almost feels like you need two surveys afterwards, don't you? For one if a referral was made and one mm-hmm. if a referral wasn't made to kind mm-hmm. of reflect both scenarios. It does, you know, it makes you wonder actually, were were all these post-intervention scenarios or pre and post scenarios, were they all like yes, you need to refer were there any scenarios that where you hadn't made had to make a referral? Because clearly the focus is on the fact that a referral has been made.
2: Mm. So
0: you almost, you know, if you're doing a study and half of your scenarios don't include a referral well you've got rid of half or a third of your survey questions haven't you so Mm. that you put to the standardized patient so so yeah it does it does feel like it'd be pretty one-sided in terms of the results that you get from that yeah like you say if a referral is made you're probably more you're happy that the referral is made so you're going Mm. to you're going to interpret that interaction more positively and then when you're questioned about the ins and outs of that um, interaction you're more likely to rate them more positively even mm. if even if you hadn't really understood the referral or um, that you don't know when you're going to see the cardiologist as some of the questions are asking mm. in some respects it you'll go well yeah I'll, I'll put yes for that because i'm just happy the referral's gone through mm-hmm. yeah a few questions there about what scenarios we used what was the proportion of referral versus non-referral scenarios used there's an availability bias bias of People know times where they should have been referred and they weren't. You don't tend to hear about the ones where people didn't need a referral, they weren't referred, and and it all worked out in the end. Mm. You only hear about the bad stories, don't you? Absolutely. So those are the ones you need to train for almost. Yeah. Yeah. I would like to just talk about the statistics. Now, statistics makes everyone glaze over, but going to the sort of analysis and the results section, they've done paired data, so that kind of makes sense. You've got a pre and a post, so it makes sense to pair individuals. Uh, that way, and, and then so sort of your uh, your statistics are sort of that way inclined. And then the question here for me is about validity. Whenever you're looking to measure something, is it valid? So is it what you think you are actually measuring? We've got some questions here that were yes and no, and we've got other questions which are on a scale, so there's, they're often used a, a five-point uh, Likert scale. When you're using a Likert scale to measure something which is a subjective feeling, you've got to get the descriptors right. And again, that's not insurmountable and that's often done that's done a lot of the time you know how confident were you in this very confident slightly confident middle of the road that sort of thing but you've got to get your terminology right they've done some other statistics here they've done a Cronbach alpha because the study was taken um, was conducted over four years data collection over four years and of course the scenarios and the standardized patients will vary too you've got to do some sort of analysis to see whether or not there's Um, Too much variation between all the different points uh, and and data. So, Cronbach alpha is one way of doing that. um, And it comes back at 7.1. Now, uh, you know, I have to be honest, I had to look that up. But it comes in at just over questionable reliability. So, 7.1 is where it becomes, it enters into the acceptable range of variation. So, we're on a kind of borderline of questionable and acceptable. Variation within the study period, and I don't think that was. I think they've classified it as acceptable, but I think you know it, it's on that. And I, and I think particularly because you've got a study that's going over four years, I think you do need to, you do need to sort of interpret that with a pinch of salt because it's very difficult to maintain something over that period with all the things that are changing. Uh, other little things to notice is that they got the study periods. I think they said they had about forty residents per year, but actually the results are out of one hundred and twenty, so we're forty residents short on on that as a kind of denominator and actually they only got 64 um, participants so um, so we're looking at a kind of a less than 50% engagement with the resident population the main point really i wanted to get at was the way you take your data from a, a like art scale um, or a yes no and they and you convert it into percentages and this is where i kind of got a little bit um uncomfortable i, I suppose because if you take a feeling statement. So, um, you know, a lot of the questions here are, how did the patient or the SP feel about the interaction, whether there was a referral or not? You convert that into a sort of something out of five, one to five, there's no zero. So it is it is a five point scale. And this is, this is essentially sort of ordinal data, which is again, which is okay compared to nominal data, it's on a kind of increasing, decreasing scale. But it's different from interval data. And what they've done here is they've taken a, a point on a scale. And because those points are actually, you know, the points on the scale are actually descriptors, like strongly agree, disagree, neither agree or disagree, those sorts of things. It's very easy to then put them into a, an ascending or descending scale. So you can put a one, two, three, four, five on that. Well, then of course you're starting to convert that into interval or numerical data. And they take it one step further and they add, they then convert the one, two, three, four, five into a percentage with one equaling 20% and five equaling 100%. So that for me didn't quite feel right. I mean, maybe that's something you can do, but when you start doing statistical analysis on that, I, I think you, you're just introducing errors along the way. So for example, one error is, this isn't a 0% to 100% scale. So When you talk about percentages, we often assume that there is a zero, but actually the lowest score you can get here is 20%. And a five, should really include anything from eighty percent to one hundred percent. So, it, the number, the statistic, the the kind of percentage there doesn't actually reflect the you know. So when you do an average or you turn that through some statistical analysis, you know, what does seventy five percent mean? Does it mean neither disagree or agree, or does it mean agree? Uh, so there's a load of questions there, and and by doing it this way, you've actually introduced a positive bias to your scores. your are average score is actually 55% or 60%. So, um, so you're kind of a positive skew on that. But I'm not a statistician. Um, So it'd be interesting to hear how you guys felt about that. Um, I suspect it's something that it maybe it's just a bit clumsy, maybe it doesn't really affect the outcome of the study. But for me, it was an illustration of how to be just a bit careful with the type of data you're using, and then just assuming you can convert it into a number, because it's not it's not always it's not always that easy and, you know, when they did the yes, no questions, it was 0% or 100%. And I'm not sure that quite works either. It's a binary question. So I don't think you can put a percent. What does 50% mean? What does 75% mean? So yeah, didn't quite sit right for me. But but because of that, I don't feel like the end outcome of the paper for me is is the actual uh, bottom line here. I think actually the paper is more about some of the other stuff that's, that's described and, and on offer. Were there any other sort of take-home points, things you would take back to your clinical practice?
2: Uh, For me, the simplicity of the the paper, they've they've done a quite simple intervention. It's got a positive outcome, um, which we know in the whole likelihood it would have a positive outcome. Whether there's a scope here of doing an intervention like this, looking at red flags of what's appropriate for referrals and also um, seeing whether that, that could be communicated appropriately to families and patients.
1: I think it would be nice to know the content of the communication that they used and see if there's anything in that could, that could be used applicable in our clinical practice as I said there's uh, very many scenarios in in which I can think of where we have to communicate either the appropriateness of a referral intervention a scan a procedure or more likely the inappropriateness of those and if there is something in the content on there that would be teachable to our trainees i think that's what i would be interested in
0: i think for me it's it's just the fact that it's a training intervention very similar to the sorts of things that you know a lot of people are doing across the organization across healthcare you know there's a problem you create an intervention you deliver your intervention and you measure the outcome and actually we don't often see those things published often because we're too busy to write these things up and, um, and, you know, do the stats and um, do it in a kind of very sort of structured, formal way. So it was just nice to see something that it isn't that difficult to do, that, you you know, if you introduce a pre and post test, you can then move to the next stage of Kirkpatrick's intervention scale. So, you know, they've gone into actual measuring performance, albeit straight after the intervention, but it is possible to do that. Um, So you can sort of just bump up the kind of The level of evidence that you present this has all been about referrals but you know on reflection actually this is not so much about referrals this is about rapport and trust um, and relationship building with in this case a parent this isn't so much about a referral as such it's how do you build that relationship have you covered all the bases are you able to reassure a patient a parent that the course of action is the right course of action uh you know we start off this thing reading the article thinking oh it's all about referrals and actually, I think it's it's probably less about referrals and more about empathy, trust building, rapport, those sorts of things, which is why, yeah, absolutely right, Dipti. That's, that's almost why you want to see the scripts and see the scenarios and the, the communication bit of it. That's kind of it really. Oh, actually, yeah, one other thing I thought, um, just as a kind of an aside, they used um, a critical incident questionnaire, the Brookfield critical incident questionnaire. And I just thought, you can Google this thing, and um, there's a five questions. And I just thought, if you were looking at developing a feedback questionnaire for a teaching session, I just thought there was some interesting question. The way the questions are phrased in there, you know, if you're thinking about doing that, it might be one to just Google and and have a look at the sorts of questions that are being asked. So, uh, you know, for example, you know, what action that anyone, teacher or student, took in the class this week did you find most puddle, puzzling or confusing? And I thought that that's probably quite a the answer to that is probably quite interesting for, for you as an educator if you're looking to you know, adapt your session.
1: That's the kind of thing that they, um, so this is a complete aside, but this is the kind of questions that people say you should ask your children after school rather than saying, what did you do today? And you get the answer, I don't know, um, I can't remember. Uh, these are the kind of questions that they say, you know, ask who made you laugh today or who did you make laugh today? Those kind of questions, that's what these questions remind me of.
0: Yeah, you're absolutely bang on. Well, there you go. <laughs> it's not just medical education here; it's life no. skills. <laughs> so there you go, Brookfield Critical Incident Questionnaire. What to ask your kids when they finish school? <laughs> um, definitely want to to end on. I think, but uh, that's brilliant. Well, thank you. Oh, Sorry, I'll, Paris. I'll, yeah,
2: I'll, yeah. I'll try that with my two and a half year old tonight. <laughs> yeah. Good luck yeah. post nursery.
0: <laughs> what was the most confusing thing about tea? <laughs> Good. Well, thank you very much uh, to both of you for joining us, joining me today. Um, I think, yeah, uh, an interesting paper, some take-home points there. Um, but yeah, that's pretty much it for today. So thank you to our listeners for listening. Um, and uh, all the remains to be said is goodbye from us. So it's goodbye from Dipsy. Goodbye. Goodbye from Harris. Goodbye. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, and it's goodbye for me. I don't know why I do it in uh, in that way, but there you go. <laughs> goodbye. Uh, all the best. See you soon thanks for listening to the Faculty Focus podcast. If you like the episode, please share with friends and colleagues. You can also like and subscribe to the show and perhaps even leave us a review. Clinical education can be tough, but we are stronger as a community. So if you have an idea for an episode or would like to come and talk to us, do get in touch via email or Twitter. Details in the show notes. The Faculty Focus podcast, community development showcase.